Hi everyone, welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcast. I really appreciate it. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind, let's roll. And so Joseph, it tells us in verse one, now Joseph, his journey going down, had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Long journey, painful, sorrow, no doubt weeping. But this is the beautiful thing, verse 2, Joseph's Lord. What has the Lord promised us? He will never leave us or forsake us. That means, that means when you're naughty and nice, where you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Jesus, when you're in and you've trusted in Jesus, he says, you know what, I'm going to be with you to the end. And that's the thing we see all the way through this story of Joseph's life and the journey down his Lord. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. Now wait, hold the press. He's a successful man. He's a prisoner. He's a slave. And now he's a guy's slave in his household. How can you be successful when you are the oppressed and the oppressors have come after you? You know, I'm sure you guys are aware, especially in the Silicon Valley, about the postmodern rhetoric of the progressive left that is saturating things. I should have started our men's retreat. Hello, my name is Rick. I identify as a man, he, him, okay? I want to give you my gender. I'm, uh, you know, they tell us what we're, you know, gender fluid. I can flow between, you know, 73 genders and who I am right now. But I'm not that gifted. I have one gender. I don't have the ability to move back and forth. But the other thing is that every single person, you either are the oppressor. Who are the oppressors? The less melanin you have in your skin, the more white you are you are the oppressor. I am in a room full of oppressors, right? And then there are those who, the darker your skin is, you're the oppressed. And critical race theory just teaches this whole dynamic of, it's, it's really racism on steroids, is what it is. It's all about racism. And there's this, it gains traction by teaching a victim mentality. Right, if you can teach people, you know, you're really a victim. Yeah, I am. I've been having a pity party for my, my life. I, I, I am oppressed. And who's the oppressor? And what happens is an entire national, global, really, worldwide movement in an ideology that moves people forward with victimhood and hatred towards people that have worked hard and achieved something they want to take what they've achieved and give it to themselves. That's what socialism, redistribution of wealth. You worked hard, I do nothing, but I should get half of your stuff. It's a, this crazy ideology. But I want you to know that Joseph, there's no icon probably in the whole scriptures that experienced more suffering, more injustice, more victimhood, and was sincerely oppressed, and he never took on a victim mentality anywhere along the line. You are moving through life as a victim or victorious. 
We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what side of the tracks you come from. It's funny to me because they, they, you know, I have white privilege. If I grow up white poor folk, white trash, we never lived in a trailer house, so I can't say I was trailer trash, but <laughs> my mom married a guy when I was six years old that just got out of San Quentin prison from, for, from armed robbery, kidnapping, prison escape, and that's who raised me. And so <laughs> we grew up <laughs> as dysfunction junction, and I'm like, what privilege did I get? I got no privilege. I don't care what, where you come from. There are challenges and obstacles to every person's life. How you face those challenges, if Christ Jesus is in your life, you are not a victim, and you never have to take on a victim mentality for the rest of your life. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, how do we overcome this world? How do we become victorious? We overcome this world by our faith in Christ Jesus. In that world, how do we overcome or how are we victorious? It is the word Nike, where they took the Greek word Nike, shoe. But in the Greek, it's Nike, and it means to be victorious or to conquer. They picked a great name for a tennis shoe, right? And Joseph here, it says, he was treacherously betrayed by his brothers, goes on a journey in chains all the way to the slave blocks, Imagine me right now, I mean, a little embarrassing, standing naked in front of you and being examined from head to toe on whether I would be a good purchase. And now I'm going to go to your house and be your slave. And the Lord says, it's all right, Joseph. I'm with you. I'm with you on the slave block. I was with you in that pit. I was with you with your, your dad loving you. And you know what, Joseph? You can be successful as a slave. Did you know that? It says he was a successful man. Success is simply accomplishing what's put before you in a way that people take notice. That's it. You go to work, you're a successful man, you showed up at work, you accomplished what was put before you in a way that other people notice. You know what? You did that in an amazing way. When there's a job opening above you, I think we'll give that to you. When you've been in leadership and management as long as I have, it's, it's never a big shock who gets promotions. Is it hard? You show up on time, you work hard, you have a respectful attitude, and you do what you're asked to do. Hello? Right, you're a prom promotable individual. And this is the things that we see in Joseph's life. And his boss, he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, this Egyptian worships pagan gods. He's, uh, he, he's as far from God as you could possibly be. But notice this. When God is working in your life and God's presence is with you on Monday morning when you go to work, other people see that. Paul the Apostle said, we are living letters known and read by all men. You're the only Bible that a lot of people are ever going to read. And once you go on record and say, I'm a Christian, the entire office goes, what? 
and now from they are criticizing you, critiquing you, watching every single thing you do, what you say, how you behave. It says in verse 3, And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Wait, how do people observe that the Lord is with you and that he's blessing everything you touch? Because anybody, no doubt Potiphar, been around for a while, He's an older man. He has a position of rank. He's Pharaoh's captain of the guard. It takes time to get there. Maybe he's been doing that job 20, 30 years. And you know what? You see a lot of humanity. A lot of people work for you. You see a lot of slaves. You see good ones. You see bad ones. You see mediocre ones. You see those who go over the top. You see those who are lazy and shirk their duties. You see everything. And all of a sudden, you see somebody that is just shining so bright in their behavior and you sense this supernatural dimension to their life. Happens whether you're in an office or on the construction site, wherever you're at. We had this gal, her name was Kathy. She taught Sunday school in our church for years. Sweetest gal. She is from the South. And she just, she just loved Jesus. She'd been loving Jesus since she was six years old. She just wants to tell everybody about Jesus. Well, she worked in a medical office in our community, and there was five women in this office. She was one of them. And I came from a community in Idaho Falls, which was 52% uh, Mormon in a town of 50,000. And outside the, in the rural part, it's 70%, and 30 miles up the road, it's 90% when you get to Rexburg, Idaho. Mormonism dominates eastern Idaho. And so she, the four, they were four temple Mormons. Now, there's a difference between Mormons, if you are familiar with Mormons. You have a Jack Mormon that grew up Mormon, wants nothing to do with the church. They don't have a temple recommend. If they're a temple Mormon, they have a temple recommend, which means they come to church on Sundays and they tithe 10%. That's all you need for a temple recommend. And so these four ladies were temple Mormons. And Kathy had been working with them for five years. She had been very open about her faith and her warm, southern, love Jesus charm. One night she got a call, and all these women were always in the office against her or kind of, you know, backbitey about her because she was the only Christian, and they were all LDS. One night she got a call late at night, 9.30 at night, and it was one of the ladies from the office. She was in the emergency room because her husband, they had had an altercation, and her husband had beat her up. She was in the hospital, and she called Kathy. Kathy came and sat with her, and, and Kathy said, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'd love to pray for you, and how can I help you? And she said, but I'm really curious. All of your Mormon sisters in the office, the other, the other three gals, why didn't you call one of them? And the gal rolled her eyes, and she said, Kathy, we know, all know you're the one that knows Jesus. The real Jesus, right? Isn't there a difference between dead religion and vibrant faith? You see, this man, a hardened, seasoned, career guy, close to Pharaoh's court, saw there is something different about this young man, and it's the presence of the God that he serves. Now, he doesn't know who that God is, but he's like, there's a presence of God on him, and no matter what he touches, if I put him in charge of the mail room, that's the best that mail room's ever looked. If I put him in charge, no matter what I put him in charge on, it just like, boom. I'm like, 
It, it's never looked like this. It's never been this good. It, it, it's never been like this before. His observation and Joseph's promotion, it says in verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. I called this the plantation because this guy doesn't just have a household. He's got open fields. He's very wealthy, no doubt, because he's so close to Pharaoh's court. Thus, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. He now makes Joseph, he promotes him. Now, he, this takes some time. Now, you don't put overnight the 17-year-old in charge, right? I just, I, I just met a young man. He's 16. He's about ready to turn 17, right? Or a, a father and a son. And do, do you put a 17-year-old in charge of your books, <laughs> everything you have, all of the staff? Well, when my son was 17, I could put him in charge of the whole portion of the ministry because I started, you know, from the age of 11, I was mentoring him and training him. You know, preacher's kids are amazing uh, because they grew up in, in, in their wheelhouse and their... Their family trade is ministry, right? They grew up helping in Sunday school. They grew up cleaning the church. They grew up eating all the communion. They grew up uh, eating all the goldfish in the back room. It's their second home. They grew up. They know how to do ministry. And, and my son, like as we would head towards a weekend because our church, you know, we had Saturday night and three Sunday morning services. Our church grew to 3,000 people. And my son, as he headed towards a weekend, you know, it would be like he can lead worship. He can teach the message. He could organize and administrate the 70 children's ministry workers. He, he had just come to me, what do you want me to do today, Dad? Because he could do it all. It's like he had this incredible skill and ability. And so finally, he became the administrator of the church, and he administrated the church for six years. And he transformed our whole financial dynamic and, and the way that we did accounting and working with a 50-year-old bookkeeper who had been doing it for me for 20 years, and he revamps all of this stuff. And in this process, I used to tell people, my son has more gifting and talent in one pant leg than I have in my whole body. With those abilities, just being faithful with whatever he's entrusted with, and this is what Potiphar saw in him, a trustworthiness. He could give him the checkbook. He could give him all the slaves. Basically, you know, in a, a business, you have the CFO. He's in charge of all the finances. You have the COO, who's in charge of operations, all your staff. You have the CEO, who's in charge of vision. And here Joseph basically becomes the chief financial officer and the chief operations officer of this guy's situation. And he says, you know what? I just want to show up and eat lunch. I don't even know what the banking account is. I don't know. Anybody else that gets put in that position, what happens? 90% of the time, they get ripped off. 90% of the time, fraud begins to happen because that steward begins to pocket things because the boss doesn't know what's going on. I can take advantage of these things. Not so in this case. 
This is who Joseph is. When Joseph wakes up in the morning, he says, I'm going to show up. I'm going to pursue the Lord, and I'm going to pursue doing the best I can in my job, and I want to be trustworthy. And I want to leave every place I come to better than when I showed up. And no matter where Joseph goes, his family, the family business was better off because Joseph was there. Here, Potiphar's house, the plantation is going to be better off because Joseph was there. We're going to find out when he goes to prison. doesn't matter the prison. The prison is going to be totally transformed. When Joseph gets to prison, he's like, hey, we can make this. If you've got to be in prison, you might as well have the best prison ever. Who thinks that way? Let me tell you who doesn't. Victims. Victims have pity parties. You know, I've just been dealt a bad hand my whole life. I don't get the promotion. I don't get this. I don't get that. They just go through life. Have you ever noticed that the common denominator in all the woes is you? You ever notice that? You see, there's this promotable aspect to Joseph's life. And this is a concept that you get through observing his life and other biblical principles that are now displayed. This is the outworking. Now, this kid's a 17-year-old homeschooled kid. Gets dropped in a foreign land, has to learn a new language, has to be a slave, has to, you know, the life of a slave is not a glorious life. You have no freedom. You have no life of your own. But in all of this, Joseph shines bright. The last ver phrase of verse 6 says Joseph's attractiveness. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and guys like this just make me sick. They have all of everything else going for them, and they're good looking. And it says, the Bible only says this of a couple of people, that they're handsome in form. That means his physical physique. He was like just naturally built jacked, men. Like broad shoulders, muscular. When you looked at him, you're like, dude, you've been in the gym. You've been hitting it. Joseph's like, no, nope, I was just born this way. <laughs> right? And then he's handsome. He's got like Hollywood good looks. So if somebody's a rock star businessman, they have Hollywood good looks, and they have this incredible physique, it can cause some problems. And so we see Joseph's temptation. Verse 7, and it came to pass after these things. Now, after what things? After Joseph excels. Now, some years are going by. Joseph's, because by the time that Joseph gets to prison, he's going to be in his probably mid to late 20s. So, some years went by, five, six years, eight years, whatever, and he has excelled. And through all of this time, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, sees this young man, handsome, just incredibly good looking. I was walking down the mall one day. And uh, because my uh, kids at the time were, um, my daughter was in the tween years. She was like 12 or so. And I saw this group of tweens. They were like probably 11 to 13 in the mall. And there was about five or six of them. And they were giggly and they all got braces on. And, you know, they're just in that gawky, awkward tween stage. And I noticed, and I, you know, kids always make me smile because I love being a dad and I love my children. And so I saw them and, and I'm walking along. And then I noticed this kid coming, and because of 
how it ended up. I was watching these girls and listening to them giggle and kind of smiling at them. And then I watched this kid. And this kid was good looking. Looked like he's a senior in high school, athlete, incredible physique, and really, really handsome. And he's walking, and he's just in his own confident world, like owning the world, just cruising down the mall, knowing all eyes are on you. And and these girls, they were going from giggling, and they see him coming, and the girls just fell all, all at once. It wasn't some rehearsed thing. They all just fell into this hush. And they watched him, and they slowly watched him, and he was totally oblivious. And they watched him till he went all the way by. And then I looked back at these girls, because I was wondering what's, you know, what's going to transpire here. And then one of the girls goes, like she squeals and bites her hand, and all the girls just went nuts over this kid. Now, what happens when a tween does that, but Joseph's now in his 20s? What happens when the cougar does it and she's 45? Right? Here, Joseph's master's wife cast longing eyes. Now, you didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday, right? You know when a girl looks at you, talks to you normally, in just interaction, and then when she has that sparkle in her eye, like, hey, baby, you're cute. And the eyes are saying it all. She casts this longing eyes on him, and she said to him, she's not subtle. She texts him and says, hey, let's go to bed. <laughs> she says, lie with me. Now, if you are at your hormonal peak, you know, in your early 20s, and obviously he grew up in a very moral uh, dynamic with the people of the Lord and his family and all that stuff. And, you know, Joseph's never been with a woman. And here she starts hitting on him. Joseph's response is so good because Joseph gives the hard no. Now, you can talk to somebody that maybe is flirting with you at the office or wherever it might be. And you kind of hem-haw around. No, there's, there's a difference between hem-hawing around and a hard no and a soft no. A soft no basically says no but insinuates, you know, maybe later. <laughs> right? Maybe I could work this out. But a hard no is a hard no. And sometimes we just have to practice no. With this many men here this weekend, some, someone here is struggling in a relationship with someone outside of your marriage, maybe you're single and you're struggling in, you know, in a uh, heterosexual type of premarital sex, fornication or adultery, either one, whatever, and, and there's some of this struggle going on. Now let me tell you, that might be the case in a couple of guys here, but in an overall way, men just simply struggle with sexual things. And I remember in the 90s, Focus on the Family came out with a uh, survey that teenager boys, that 92% of the teenage boys admitted to masturbating, and focus on the family put a note, and the other 8% lied. <laughs> so there's a sexuality, from the time you go through puberty, there's a sexual energy that you have to figure out what to do with, right? And uh, and the Lord says it's better to marry than to be burned up with passion to where you have nowhere to wreck that sexual energy. But we live in a generation that you might be married, but
But there's a lot of places to direct your sexual energy, right? 68% of men are getting their sexual gratification from porn now in the world. Those numbers aren't, aren't very different in the church, right? Because who's in the church? Men, right? And, and all of these things are so important for us guys to be able to actually deal with, especially in a context of a men's retreat, because you can talk a little bit more that it's not um, constrained by the ladies being here in such a way that when we talk about who we are and sexuality, girls go, ooh. All the guys go, yep, that's, that's us. That's who we are. Sorry about that. And there's just, like, there's just <laughs> apples and oranges in the sexuality between those two things. So Joseph here, he's got to give a hard no, and I love it because Joseph's heart is the Lord says to love him, the Lord with all your heart, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And his hard no is wrapped in that package. He says, but it, he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. He's like, I'm not doing this to my master. I'm going to love him as myself, my neighbor as myself. How then I can, can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He said, I'm not going to sin against my master, my neighbor, and I'm not going to sin against God. And he calls it what it is, adultery, fornication, sexual sin. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness? Now, when's the last time you heard somebody talk like that? Get involved in something sexual, this great wickedness. I mean, it's like, ooh, people don't talk that way anymore. Joseph does because that's the way he looked at it. What happens to us is we desensitize things that, you know, I got a little struggle. Joseph goes, no, it's great wickedness. Great wickedness. In his response, you would think that hard no, bam, would take care of it. Not so. This chick is persistent. Maybe she's more intrigued with the hard to get. Verse 10, so it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to, to be with her. Day after day. Guys, this was not like a one-time deal. Like, he's, he lives on the property, right? It's morning, noon, and night. You know, he's going by. Can you see this chick pinching him on the butt as he goes by, winking at him, trying to grab a hold of him, just being flirty. All I mean, just he's just like, ah. This lady's driving me crazy. Now, let's, let's be honest here. Unless this chick is good looking, there's no temptation. Right? If she's as ugly as a mud fence, <laughs> that's an easy hard no. <laughs> but no doubt, she has enough attraction She's within this dynamic of Potiphar is a significant heavy hitter in Egypt. I mean, he, he, he's a, a person of note. And guys like that, they get the young hotties. So 
here Joseph is dealing with this, and day after day after day after day, and you might be, you know, you get to resist one temptation, and you're just, whoo, praise the Lord. That's such a close call. Yeah. Now you're going to live that every day, 365, right, day after day. I had uh, gotten engaged to my bride of 36 years, Tammy, and uh, we're high school sweethearts. We've been together 40 years from our first date. And we went to church. I was a young Christian, and I shared Jesus with Tammy. She was the first person I led to Christ after I got saved. And then we started going to church, Calvary Chapel of Twin Falls, Idaho. And we went to church, and Tammy and I had been sleeping together all the way through our relationship, you know, from high school on. And at the time, we were, we were living together. We were engaged, but we were living together. And we came to church, and I didn't know the Bible. I mean, I had received Jesus, but I just didn't know the Bible yet. I'd probably been uh, a Christian for, like, I don't think quite a year, maybe eight months or something. And we were in church, and the pastor was teaching in 1 Corinthians, and he was talking about sexual immorality and fleeing sexual immorality. And then he just, you know, talked about, you know, sex before marriage and extra uh, marital sex and adultery. And he was just describing the differences. And I realized as I was just floored because we're in love, we're engaged. And in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, you know, we love Jesus and we're getting married and everything. And then I realized when he was teaching, I'm like, um, oh, snap, we're in fornication. So we get out to the car, and I, I told Tammy, I said, hey, we're in sin. we got to repent. And she's like, well, we love each other. I said, no, don't you realize? I mean, the, the wedding's like four months away. I don't want to live in sin for the next four months. I want to love Jesus. I want to do what he wants me to do. And if he tells me not to do this, then I don't want to do it. And now this is the problem. I couldn't be around Tammy and not end up in bed. It's just like, you know, serious attraction. So my boss had a connection in Las Vegas. I was a tile setter. That's what I am by trade uh, in construction. And he had a gig where I could go to work in Las Vegas for the second largest tile company in America, the Catello Brothers, because they have all of the casinos. The largest tile company in America is in Atlantic City. Once again, all the casinos, because that's all you do is put tile and marble right in those places. So, who flees to Vegas to get away from sexual sin? I did. <laughs> what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? No. <laughs> so I go to Vegas. I'm working in the casino high-rise, the Flamingo Hilton. It's their new high-rise, and I'm putting marble in the uh, tub splashes in this place. And uh, I'm going to a great church, so I would just, every night of the week, if the church was open, I worked all day, and I went to church at night so I could stay out of the strip clubs. And uh, I just loved Jesus for those three or four months and went to church, and I'm in Vegas. You know, the Lord says, you will not be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but he will provide a way of escape. Like, all you have to do is say, Lord, where's the, see right here, all I have to do is say, where's that exit sign? There's exit signs by every one of these doors. I want to get out of this room. Well, i got to look for the exit. So I just ask the Lord, hey. So I get there, and I'm doing this, and I'm working hard. And I'm just, I'm just thinking, this is, this is awesome. I'm right with God. I'm no longer in sexual sin. I'm going to get married to my precious bride here on May 17, 1986. And uh, 
So I go to work and in Vegas in the summer, you go to work at six in the morning, you're off at two because it's so stinking hot. And then uh, in the winter, you go to work at seven and you're off at three. And I, so every day I would go to the pool, the swimming pool afterwards, and I would lay by the t- pool and listen to Pastor Chuck Smith on the radio. It was perfect timing to listen to Word for the Day. So I go there, I think I'm just safe. You know, I'm, I'm not going to the clubs. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm being a good boy. And you don't know. That's a hard thing for me to be a good boy when it comes to sexuality. I grew up in sexual craziness, and you see just across the line from where I grew up was well Nevada where there were houses of prostitution that are legal. And so when, from 16 on, when my friends and I wanted to be, we, we'd just go to the whorehouse, or we had girlfriends, or we slept with anybody. It was like, it, so I'm coming from a headspace of total sexual perversion and trying to now love God. And even my boss that got me the job, and I, I know there's some young men in here, but if you're 16 and 17, welcome to a man's world, right? Uh, but I, I was going on a job once I was a Christian, and my boss was uh, the founder of Catello Tile and Marble, Chuck Catello, they call him Papa Chuck, but he also owned partnership in a number of uh, houses of prostitution. So anytime we'd go on a road trip, we would do commercial tile, so we would tile hospitals and malls and all kinds of things. Anyway, so I'm going down the road with with, with Papa Chuck to a job, and he's driving, and the the hooker's between us, real sweet lady, and uh, and, (laughs) And Chuck begins to describe to me, he's like, you know, hey, Rick, you know, we're on this trip. It's just the two of us on this trip, and she's here with us, and she can take care of me and you sexually. And he began to describe to me how gifted she was in certain sexual arts. And uh, I'm like, I'm good, Chuck. <laughs> I'm good. Um, I'm going to be. He goes, I know you're a good Christian boy. I know you're engaged, but we're out of town. I just want you to know if you want her services, she's with us. Right? This is my world. This is what I grew up with, okay? <laughs> and uh, so when you put a guy like me in Las Vegas and say, now, love Jesus, go to church, and keep your pants zipped up, that's a big deal. I think I've got it all wired. i got my schedule, so I am not in scary places whatsoever where there's no hot chicks. And I go to the pool. Now, because it was, I would go at two or three, depending on the summer and the winter, there's never anybody at the pool. Everybody's working, right? I go to the pool, and one day, this really beautiful girl shows up. I mean, she looks like a model. And I'm like, really? Like, all the places she could show up and go swimming, she's going to be here. And then these two college kids showed up shortly after that, and I thought, whew. And then it was like, what a relief. Because they began to, you know, they were all cool, trying to get at the end of the pool. Whatever end of the pool she'd go to, they'd go down there, trying to talk to her and get her phone number, and, and she was just, like, blowing them off. And, and so I would just, was finally relaxed because, you know, they had their thing going on, and I wasn't there alone. And then it got kind of quiet, and I, I had my, I was just leaning back in the sun with my eyes closed, and it got quiet. And you know when you feel somebody's presence next to you? I mean, this is a big pool with probably 60 loungers around it at a complex. 
and I feel somebody's presence, and it's the girl, and out of all the 50, she lays down right next to me. And the two guys she had blown off, they left. Lord. I'm thinking, no, not this. I don't, I don't need this right now. And then she's real sweet. You know, I just got back from a gig in Europe and doing some modeling over there, and it was so fun. I just, just got back, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, I got a photo shoot here in another week, and I really don't want a tan line on my back. Could you just undo my bra strap or my, my, my swimming suit? And I used to always do this with my mom and my sister, so I'm like, Okay, I did it. And then I thought, oh no. I, I, I stepped over the line. And so I, I just, once again, I'm just trying to tune her out. And, and she starts talking to me again. And so I turn to, you know, be courteous and look at her. And, and she's up on her elbows so that she can show me her full breasts. And she's like, you know, my apartment's just right there. Would you like to go see my apartment? And at that moment, I just, I just like come undone. Because, I mean, the bottom line is there's this tension inside of me because the humanness in me, I'm a long ways from home. My wife, my, my fiance doesn't know. Or my, I'm not married yet. You, I mean, you, all the things you can jump through in your mental gymnastics. And nobody had ever known. I've never seen this girl in the months that I've been here, so it's not like she's... I'd probably ever see her again. And I just, for the first time in my life, with wrestling with my own sexuality, I, I wanted to please Jesus. I had never had the strength or the power inside of me for the love of someone like Jesus to motivate me in that way. And honestly, it's, it's the only thing that could break this strong sexual drive towards ungodly things that I was wired for. And so when she, you know, she revealed her breasts to me, invited me to her apartment, and I, I realized I gotta run. I, all, in my mind, all I thought is run. And I didn't even know the Bible verse yet, flee sexual immorality. You know, the, and so I just, she invited me, and I had to grab my radio. So I jumped up, grabbed my towel, grabbed my radio, and I was going to say, uh, maybe I'll see you in some, I was trying to be polite, and I would just, went, <laughs> I, I, I ran away from the pool. I jogged in my flip-flops all the way to my apartment. I opened the door. I fell on my knees and on my face, and I said, oh, Jesus, 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 thank you. Thank you for getting me away from this woman. Now, the interesting thing is that woman, though she was very beautiful, said she had been doing modeling stuff. I kept, I told myself, if you look towards her, look at her feet. <laughs> and so she had had an accident of some sort, and she had, uh, part of her uh, two toes were gone, and you could tell, like, there was scars, like she had had some injury. And so later when we got married and Tammy was living there and I had told her this story, we, every time we went to the pool, she went, looked for the half-footed woman. True story, crazy, right? And so the wrestling 
with that and the dynamic with that. But if you would have thrown at, that at me day after day, right? Joseph's now dealing with this day after day after day until verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. She grabs him by the robe, you know, they wear robes or tunics, and he wiggles his way out of it so he'd only have a loincloth on. He basically ran out of the house in his whitey tidies, right? He's running and, and, getting, and she's got his, got his robe. And now that she has his robe, he does all the right things. He wants to honor his master. He wants to honor God. He runs from this woman, and his punishment for doing the right thing is prison. There's nothing that infuriates me more in my own soul than injustice when it happens to me, <laughs> right? And we go through life and it's not fair. Now, if you ever let those words come out of your li mouth, life is not fair. And it, the Lord never told you life was fair. And the story of Joseph's life proves that's true. So think about it. Check this out. And so it was, in verse 13, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept the, his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought in to, came to, in to mock me. So it w happened, as I lifted up my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into prison and a, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison, in the prison. Joseph goes from a milk box, his dad thinking he's dead or he's disappeared, killed by wild animals, now to the sexual offender list, right? And wiped out by this woman who totally lies about him. And right, once that claim comes, and if you cannot somehow bring evidence that it's not true, your life is not the same. Joseph goes to prison on an attempted rape charge when he did absolutely everything he could to be the most upright, upstanding, godly gentleman he possibly could and did the only thing he could, and that is run for his life. Now, the radical thing is, is once again, the sexuality that you and I are de dealing with. All of us have different degrees of sex drive. You also have a different degree of sex drive depending on how you're feeding that sex drive. If you're feeding it with more, like you know, very graphic movies or porn or whatever, then that, that drive is you know, accelerated. You're, you're throwing fuel on that accelerant upon that passion that's already there. So the Bible says, do not, you know, it's better not to 
burn with passion, it's better to get married. But Paul says if you get married, you're going to have a different bucket of problems. Right? If you're single, you got the loneliness problem and trying to keep your sexuality contained in a way that pleases God. You get married, you have another bucket of problems. Right? So you just exchange buckets. So that's why the single man tells me, oh, I can't wait. My life will be, it'll be perfect when I get married. I go, <laughs> man, dude, what Disney movies you've been watching? Because you have a whole different set of issues, right? Because now there is access to a godly outlet to my sexual drive, but it's wrapped in a package of emotions and their own thoughts about what intimacy is, right, and how much you can approach the candy store always comes down to in marital counseling about the sexuality as frequency and freedom, right? How frequent and are you free with your body and da-da-da-da-da. But we're not going to get into any, uh, any of that. But this is the reality. You've got a whole other challenge. You got married and now all of a sudden you think, wow. And I know people because for the last 20 years I've been talking to men nonstop about these issues. I want you to know, I'm a happily married man, seriously attracted to my wife after all these years. She walks in the room, long blonde hair, beautiful blue eyes. She rocks my world. And yet, the struggle and the challenge with the level of my drive, the level of my freedom, right, and her perspective, those are two things that you have to work out over time and sharing the truth and love. Because there's nothing more difficult than actually talking about sexual things. So figuring out a rhythm that works for you and a rhythm that works for her. Now some of you are older and you're like, you know, we've been beyond, I have the older guys say, you know, we're long past that. We sleep in different bedrooms. I snore and she snores and, you know, we have a, you know, a habit at night that, you know, he puts, takes out his hearing aids and I put in my earplugs because I can't, I, I get that. Solomon says the last thing to go as he talks in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 about old age, the last thing to go is he says is desire, sexual desire. I get that. But unless you're at that place, it's still an issue. As the young man was talking to the young men in the church and he said, flee youthful lust. An 80-year-old man came up to him afterwards and said, young man, I'm 80 years old and I still have youthful lust. I just don't move as fast as I used to. So, Joseph flees, and once again, he experienced injustice. A fire is good if it's in the fireplace of your home. If it's in the middle of the living room, it's going to burn your house down, right? A fire needs a hearth. It needs protection. It has, has to have a purpose. And that's the way sexual energy is. In a home, you can have, you know, if you have a, a gas stove, you have a gas water heater, you have a gas dryer, you have a gas, uh, you know, fireplace in the living room. All these places have the potential to burn your house down, right? There's fire there. But they're contained and encased in a way to in, use the energy of the fire without burning the place down. And that's the way our sexual energy is in our families. 
right? I can, I can burn the place down. I can, I can destroy my wife. I can destroy my witness. I can destroy my ministry. I can destroy my, my children's hearts, my grandchildren's hearts. I can be devastated in every day of my life, man. You know, there's some things when you get saved, God just takes, takes away. I got saved and I just never had the desire to drink again. I got saved and I had never had that desire to smoke again. I got saved and flushed the drugs and never had it. There are those things, right? But God always allows something to remain. And for me, it's always been sexual energy to stay harnessed. And I absolutely hate it. It's one of those things. I know every single day of my life, men, my entire life, for the last 35 years, 36 years of serving Jesus, have been poured out to the one I love in heaven to be useful. But it only takes me to make a couple of decisions on one day to ruin everything I've built for a whole life. You know, I want to speak a word from David's experience. And David, having blown it, said, Lord, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you renew a steadfast spirit in me? Would you restore to me the joy of your salvation? And would you not take your spirit from me? And he says, and if you'll restore me, Lord, I will teach sinners your ways. David said, from his failure, I'm going to preach a sermon to the men of God. From his failure. You see, a sermon can come from the place of victory, or it can come from the place of failure. Both are powerful. But the thing is, is that though we can be repentant, forgiven, and restored, the unusual level of drama that surrounds sexual sin is so much worse, right? Having struggled and tried to keep this fire in the fireplace my whole Christian life, I look at people with other struggles and how they freely go through it, and it just makes me sick. Right? Some people are killing themselves with a fork. They overeat. That's their thing. They get stressed, they eat. They do, you know, they're happy, they eat. Everything they do is eat. America, it's culturally acceptable. Just kill yourself with your fork. Just eat, eat, eat. And I'm like, oh, would to God that that was my struggle. I could go to heaven early. That would be a great thing. Other people that are sins are really, you know, it's the self-righteous and the judgmental in the church. And they just go, they're just so bad, and I'm so good. And their whole struggle is self-righteousness. I'm like, how would that be to have that struggle? Just to be a judgmental, in the words of C.S. Lewis, he calls him a prig, which means a self-righteous person. A self-righteous prig. See, everybody's got their struggle. And men... I know in this room, the sexual energy and the sexual failure and the sexual redemption and the grace of God and the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and the power of God to start fresh for each one of us. Because you can't bring a message like this without talking about the reality of restoration 
God loves you, man. He's never going to forsake you. But maybe this weekend, there's nothing that blunts a passion for God when we're spending that passion in the area of sexual things. It just blunts, it just makes our, our hearts cold. So may the Lord refresh you, communicate his love to you. No failure needs to be final in the heart of a child of God. Every new day, you guys, every day, his mercies are new. Every day, his mercies are new. Light in the darkness, I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Times of trouble, I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 whoa. I will keep my heart seeking